Welcome to Brain Ignition Radio. Here I share with you all of the knowledge and resources I've gained as it relates to nutrition, exercise, and brain health. By sharing these interesting case studies, in-depth discussions, and research, I hope that we can learn together and improve our current health and the health of future generations. I'm your host, Chet Binning, and I thank you for tuning in. What's up, guys? Thank you for tuning in. Today, we're going to do our first official Q&A episode. Really excited to kick this one off. As I've told you guys before, I actually prefer doing Q&As because it, uh, well, it kind of keeps me on track more. Prevents me from really rambling on about things you guys don't care about. If I have questions, well, then I at least know that this is the stuff you want to hear about and we can just focus on that. So thank you to those who sent these in to me and please continue to do so, whether that be on, well, Instagram be the easiest place, but um, email's fine too. That's in the show notes, whichever you guys like, either is, is cool. So today we're gonna talk about some quick and dirty tips for sleep. We'll talk a little bit about what I eat in a day we have some questions about recovery from exercise and sore muscles, my favorite supplements, nutrients to be mindful of if we're following a vegan or vegetarian diet. And that was it, those five, but I'm sure those will lead into some other interesting topics as we go through this. So let's start with the sleep. This is always a good question. Who doesn't want to improve sleep? get more sleep, but quality sleep is important too, because as we know, not all sleep is created equally. Some people can get eight or nine hours and feel exhausted still and feel like they need more. Other people can get seven and a half or even six hours and feel amazing. Before we jump in, it's interesting. I know we always hear this interesting um, advice about getting eight hours. I think what I wish that included a little bit more detail. I think it should say be in bed for eight hours because in fact for sleep, like about seven and a half hours is actually a really good number for most people. Good in that it's, it's enough to, you know, for most people to feel rested and recover and it is a realistic number, I think. Telling people to get nine hours of sleep, that's not realistic. We just don't have time. But I say seven and a half instead of eight because your sleep cycles actually go on average in 90-minute cycles. So eight hours is kind of a, a weird number. But I think that's there because when you factor in the time, say, maybe 10 to 15 minutes to fall asleep and then maybe it's like 10 to 15 minutes to kind of get out of bed in the morning if you hit snooze once or whatever just roll around under the sheets for a little bit um that's probably where the eight hours comes from but seven and a half seems to be a really good number for a lot of people so as we get into the sleep i'm going to tell you a little bit about my whoop data as of late as well which is a it's a a, a wearable technology that records recovery, but it also records sleep. If you're not familiar with it, speaking of sleep, Benson under the desk right now, snoring logs. If you can hear that in the background, he's getting his uh, 16 hours in or whatever it is. So the thing about the whoop um, does track REM sleep as well as deep sleep and, and even things like disturbances and wake ups and stuff. And, and that's really cool. And I've learned some things from it. So some quick and dirty tips, sleep environment. So this is your room in particular. And the things we want to think about here are technology, light and temperature. There's some overlap here, but temperature is really important guys. You want it to be cool in your room. I don't have a perfect temperature for you, roughly 17 degrees Celsius though. You want it to be cool enough where you have to use blankets. 
I don't think we need to explain much of the science behind this one. We've all experienced an awful, terrible sleep when we're hot and sweaty in the summertime and the AC is broken. But your body wants to be cold during sleep. In fact, before bedtime, as your body is preparing for sleep, your body temperatures will start to decrease. As I've said before, if you're laying around at night and you notice that you're all of a sudden starting to get a little bit more cold and chilly, that's a, a, a signal or an indicator that your body's actually prepping for sleep. So that would be a nice time to get to bed, especially if you're someone who does struggle with sleep. So use that signal to your advantage. We'll, and we'll talk a little bit about temperature later on. Um, you can kind of manipulate this in a way to get back to a good sleep schedule. So that's temperature. Light is equally important. You want it to be as dark as possible in your room. Perfect scenario, you would not even be able to see your hand in front of your face. So blackout curtains, get rid of all the little flashing lights throughout your room. Even little lights on a TV or an alarm clock. These have an effect guys. Our, our eyes are incredibly sensitive and our body in general to these lights. Light has the opposite effect that we want during sleep. It causes alertness. We want the total opposite. So you want dark, dark, dark. We have a, um, um, our internet router is in our bedroom or whatever you call it. It's in our bedroom and it is, I mean, it's, it's really bright. It gives off a ton of flashing light. So I just unplug that every, every night we go to bed, kind of kill two birds with one stone, um, less time around Wi-Fi while you sleep. I think that's a good thing. And then just the lights though is, is the big thing for me. So that's going to make it a lot darker. So you can do the same, um, try and unplug some things if possible, limit the lights in your room and then technology. So having your phone, this is the worst thing. I, and people still do this. I just don't understand it. Having the phone switched on underneath your pillow, terrible idea, guys. If you're doing that, please stop doing that. I, I don't know why people would have it under their pillow in the first place, but um, people have the reasons, I guess. Now, obviously, if you're like on call or something like that, then it's going to be in there. It's going to be turned on. That's necessary. But try and put it across the room at least. There is definitely something to be said about constant exposure to the radiation that we're going to get from that. It's it's not a good thing to have all the time. And then even just in terms of like disconnecting, there's also some value here. And so ideally try and have that phone out of your room if possible. I don't do this in fact. So like, this is just best case scenario. I will put it on airplane mode and just put it usually across the room just to use it as an alarm, but face down so that it's never going to light up. So you want to switch that off. Um, and just, like I said, have it as far away as possible or even out of the room. If you have that, that luxury. And then avoiding your phone right before bed. So like laying in bed, looking at your phone, especially like browsing news or social media or something, um, awful habit in my opinion. And, and especially if you're someone who struggles with sleep quality, if you are doing this, this is a really good thing to, um, get rid of. So we talked about, um, light food would be another really important thing here. So, with whoop if you're not familiar with it, it it gives you some interesting feedback on what either improves or impairs your sleep and recovery so for instance you might get a notification every 30 days or month or or longer and say every time you report this certain behavior your sleep improves by this percent or this number, or it might be the opposite. It might say when you report this behavior, it impairs this or decreases that. So a couple of the interesting ones that I've seen for myself, just personally, is that when I report intermittent fasting, my sleep and recovery improves. 
And then another thing is blue light blocking glasses. So the blue light blocking glasses, this is really straightforward. This is just to filter out as much artificial light as possible later on in the night. If you do still have some lights on or watching TV or whatever. So Keel and I will do this most nights. We'll kind of just relax on the couch leading up to bed and watch some TV. So I'll throw them on during that time. She loves them. She thinks they're super sexy. <laughs> um, but all the other lights are off. So everything else is dark in the house. This is just, you know, a, an, an easy tool, in my opinion, that you can add in. Again, especially if you're someone who struggles with sleep. I am someone who struggles with sleep if I don't do all of these things. If I do all of these things, it's awesome. If I don't, then I'm uh, a pretty restless sleeper. So blue light blocking glasses, that's easy. And then the food. So with the intermittent fasting, I personally think that it's actually how close you're eating to bed as opposed to just like fasting for a certain amount of time. So what I mean is when I get that benefit from intermittent fasting, I think it's just because when I report that behavior, it also means I'm not eating close to bed. I think the benefit is from not eating before bed. I don't think it's coming from me say not eating for like 16 hours from nighttime to the next morning or something like that. So this is something to think about. If you do tend to eat like leading up to bed right before bed, this is another thing to work on. There's actually a couple reasons why this impairs sleep quality, but one of the big ones is that when we consume food and force our digestive system to work, that increases our body temperature. And if you recall from the start of this episode or a couple minutes ago, temperature is a really important signal for your sleep-wake cycle. So it almost acts as kind of like the governor that tells the rest of your body it's either time to wake up and have energy and increase our focus or the opposite at nighttime. At nighttime it's the signal to do the opposite. So like I said, at nighttime, your body temperature will decrease. This is the signal to your body and brain to start relaxing and calm down and prep for sleep. Eating food does the opposite. It increases your body temperature. On the other hand, in the morning, after we wake up, our body temperature starts to rise and starts to increase. And this serves as the signal to increase energy, start mobilizing some resources, increase our focus. And so food at this time, sometime after waking, can be a good tool. So this is part of the reason why eating before bed is really, really detrimental to sleep for most people, the majority of people. So just a couple kind of quick points on, um, I would call it the fun stuff, like alcohol and weed. So unfortunately, booze before bed is one of the worst things for sleep. You guys probably already know this. There seems to be a cutoff, um, at least in the research and also according to lots of people now using these wearable technologies, where one drink can be okay if it's early enough. So you still wouldn't want to have that and then just immediately go to bed, but maybe like a couple hours leading up to bed but like two and beyond i know it doesn't seem like much but two and beyond really seems to tank sleep sleep quality is the big thing because as you know it's usually not an issue getting to sleep when we're drinking it's the sleep quality now that being said with sleep and this is important for th things like marijuana too is we do have to consider where we're, we're coming from. What's our baseline? So if your baseline is your sleep is awful, you can't get to sleep and you're up for several hours before you fall asleep. Well, for that person, then yeah, maybe some alcohol is, is a good thing because it's going to help them get to sleep. And even though it's not 
ideal or optimal, like I said, for that person, it's giving them improvement. So you have to ask yourself, is it improving your individual sleep or is it impairing it? So this is a, a really great example of how sometimes, you know, we can't paint everyone with the same brush. I would say a similar thing when it comes to marijuana. So we do know that it can impair particularly REM sleep. So this is the type of sleep that you'll mostly get towards the end of the night when most of your dreaming occurs. It's also when, if we just kind of like simplify it, when a lot of memory storage and processing occurs. So clearly really important sleep as is deep sleep. But marijuana seems to impair the amount of REM sleep. And so based on that, again, not a great option. However, just ask yourself the question, how is it affecting your sleep? So again, if it's someone who typically without it cannot get to sleep, stays up for several hours, and then only gets a couple of sleep, but then they use marijuana and it allows them to get more sleep, even if it's not the best, well, then for that person, it's going to be an improvement. And then just kind of a couple more important points here when it comes to sleep. So magnesium, supplemental magnesium, as we've talked about in previous episodes, the one supplement that helps a ton of people because it does have calming effects. And we've talked about this before, so we won't spend too much time on this but good high quality supplemental magnesium. So you want magnesium glycinate ideally bonus points. If it has added B6, because we know that the effectiveness of the magnesium is superior when it has added B6 because the B6 helps the, um, actual metabolism of the magnesium allows it to do what it's supposed to. And then if you can get some added taurine, as we've also talked about before, because it has a calming effect as well, promotes GABA signaling. And then magnesium malate it has a, a calming effect for muscles. So if you're someone who gets restless leg syndrome, um, kind of that's the easiest way to describe it really. If you know, you know, this is one that can help with that. I've personally found that when I don't take enough magnesium, I will wake up early in the morning usually like three, 4 AM with that feeling in my legs. And I, I can't get back to sleep unless I take more magnesium. However, I don't get that if I do take adequate magnesium, it also depends on the amounts of activity. So for you athletes out there, you're going to require more magnesium. And so if you're someone who gets this, this is, um, a possible target. Sun rise and sunset believe it or not, also has an enormous effect on sleep. So if you can get some exposure to sunrise within about roughly 90 minutes of sunrise, it doesn't take long, about 10 minutes, and make sure it's without sunglasses. Sunglasses will block the light energy from the sun, which is what you want because that sun quite literally gets into your eyes. Your eyes relay this message into this area in the, the back of your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And then with there, it, it kind of interprets this, this signal. And what it's doing when it interprets that is it, it starts your clock for the day. So it starts your clock. When it does this, it's giving you energy and so on. But the key here is that it, it starts your clock. And when your clock runs out, that's when you're going to be ready for sleep and start to feel tired. And so if you're not giving your body and brain that signal to start your clock, then you're going to be delayed. You're going to be shifted, meaning that you're not going to be able to go to bed when you want. You're going to be forced to stay up later because you're just not tired. And then sunset, same idea. If you can be outside within roughly about 90 minutes of sunset, doesn't have to be long again, about 10 minutes. This is the most effective probably, but certainly one of the easiest ways to really 
support your sleep wake cycle. And it sounds funny, but it's another one of those things where if you actually start to think about it, I mean, it does make sense, right? It's, it's, it makes sense. If you think about things like shift work and how hard that is, how much that messes with wellness and energy and mood and overall health, we know that unfortunately it's, it increases our risk for various illnesses. It really has to do with this sleep wake cycle and how our body is really designed to be awake during the day and be asleep at night and trying to do the opposite is really hard on the body, unfortunately. So those would be the big things guys. That wasn't as quick as I wanted it to be, but hopefully it was still dirty. Um, and then lastly, just a couple foods that you can think about. This is like very, you know, nitpicky. These would not be essentials in my mind, but, um, if you're eating carbohydrates at dinner, which is a really good thing for sleep quality, which I kind of jumped over, there are some specific foods that might have some unique benefits to sleep. So things like kiwis, actually tart cherry juice is another one, but just be mindful of the sugar content in that. And then actually dairy as well. So I really like having some, some full fat grass fed whenever possible dairy, usually after dinner, just as a little bit of a snack. Um, but also has some unique, um, unique properties that can benefit sleep. So that took a little bit longer than planned, but what do you do? Let's move on to the next one. Um, what's my typical daily diet like, or what do I eat in a day? So I, I definitely do not follow like any particular diet. I've certainly experimented with some different ones, but, um, right now not following any quote unquote diet, but usually what I'm eating is, um, high protein breakfast, always with some type of animal protein. And we've, we've talked a little bit about this in the previous episodes about the benefits of that, but I'll usually have some type of usually some ground beef, um, with maybe something like radishes kind of random, but it is uh, a bitter and bitters can help with the digestion and breakdown of uh, certain foods. Sometimes with some raw nuts or seeds, so maybe like some cashews or some Brazil nuts or whatever I'm feeling. And then I'll oftentimes have that with like some berries and or some type of fermented food. So maybe like some sauerkraut or something like that. I feel awesome when I do that. Sometimes I'll have an omelet, but like I said, always high protein, usually but not always like pretty low to moderate carbohydrate. That's what I've found works best for me. And then I'll usually have some type of oatmeal for um, mid morning, or sometimes that's even not until lunchtime, just depending on work and how busy I am. Now with oatmeal, really important point here, not all oats are created equally. So I stick to plain oatmeal for sure. And then whenever possible, a sprouted oatmeal. So this is something that's important as we, or sorry, once we get to our discussion about uh, tips for a vegan diet. So things like sprouted oats, um, you'll see some sprouted grains or seeds. What sprouting does is it actually it makes that food more digestible and it can also increase the bioavailability of the nutrients that are in that food. Excuse me. So sprouted oats, sprouted oatmeal, it's going to be different than just your classic, um, kind of regular oatmeal that we would see in the grocery store. So if you can find that, that's going to be a bonus, but definitely plain oatmeal. In my opinion, you don't want that. Um, just sugar filled, sugar filled oatmeal. Now it is plain. So what I'll do with that is I'll usually stir in some protein powder that gives it a really nice taste. And then I'll just add a bunch of other stuff. Um, again, this is just what works for me. I would say on compared to most people, I eat a lot of calories and that's just with um, I love doing a, a ton of weightlifting and um, 
other working out and, and whatnot. And I mean, that burns a ton of calories. So if I don't eat enough, I, I feel like crap. So just keep that in mind, but I will add usually like some coconut oil. Um, usually some pumpkin actually this is something that i've kind of gotten into in the past several months we started giving it to benson because it it can be good for some not just dogs like digestion in general it has some benefits for gut health but anyways we started giving it to him and then i started trying it after him and i really like it so i'll add some pumpkin uh usually like some cinnamon in there and then it varies. Sometimes I'll throw some fruit in, sometimes um, nuts or seeds. It, it really kind of depends on um, what's going on that day, how much energy I want, how hungry I am, and that type of thing. Um, lunchtime is really all over the place. Sometimes it'll be nothing. Sometimes I'll make a little bit of a, a salad, perhaps. Sometimes I'll make a stew. So I try and do this in bulk, so I'll just throw on the stove top, like um, in a pot, a bunch of broth, a bunch of rice or quinoa, maybe one or two veggies. So like an arugula or a kale or something like that. I, I don't like that stuff raw, but I, I do like eating it if it's cooked. And then maybe like some chicken or something like that. And you can do that in bulk. It's a really nice thing to have and just kind of grab and go. And usually I'll also stir in there some tallow actually. It just makes it more filling and adds some flavor as well. Or you could add in like some butter. Sometimes there'll be some snacks in the afternoon. Again, always different. And then dinner time is that's all over the place. But typically usually just kind of like basic there'll be a meat there um some type of carb whether that's like sweet potato rice or both or some other ones in there and then some type of veggies so it might be like maybe it'll be taco salad or just like your classic um like steak and green beans and rice or you know whatever could be uh, lots of different things and then like i said earlier Oftentimes I will have something after dinner, but I do my best to get that in as early as possible. So maybe like some rice cakes, um, some full fat yogurt, um, or lots of different things there. So tips for recovery and sore muscles. So this is a good one. Uh, first thing to keep in mind here is that once you have that muscle soreness, there's really not a lot you can do to um, speed up that that relief of the soreness. Once it's there, it's there. Now, that being said, there are things you can do that would make it worse, right? If you have that soreness and then you keep pushing and do a workout that day and the next day it's it's probably going to get a little bit worse that's not always the case but that's one thing but in terms of just improving that soreness improving your recovery the best options are really just the simple things so proper hydration good sleep moving lymph around your body so we obviously covered a lot of sleep hydration this is the thing I want to highlight here is that you need more than just water. So this is, this comes up all the time. This is actually a, a good thing to kind of pause on for a minute. I hear this all the time is that people report drinking lots of water, something like three to four liters a day, and they still feel dehydrated. They feel like they just keep drinking and drinking and it doesn't do anything. Well, yeah, that's because Water is really only part of the equation when it comes to proper hydration. You need minerals and electrolytes. So I'm talking about magnesium, potassium, sodium, calcium, zinc. But the big ones would be the, your sodium, potassium, and magnesium. So if you do not have sufficient amounts of these, which is quite common, you're not going to be retaining that water in your body. And so this is why people say, I drink all day long, I'm constantly peeing, and I feel dehydrated. Well, yeah, it's because those minerals actually act to retain that water within your body, 
they'll literally grab it and, and retain it and keep it in your body. And then that's what hydrates you. If you don't have those minerals on board, there's nothing to retain that water. And so you will just pee it all out and then ultimately be dehydrated. And in some instances, drinking ex excessive amounts of water without adequate amounts of minerals and electrolytes can further dehydrate you because it will flush out what minerals you do have. So one of the easiest ways to make sure you are getting enough of these would just be to salt your meals to taste with a, a good sea salt. So that could be like a Celtic sea salt or a pink Himalayan sea salt. A Redmond's real salt is a good one. I like to also start my morning with a little bit of salt in my water um, with a, a little bit of lemon, but the salt's the key here. Just you can quite literally just take a pinch in between your, your fingers and drop that in or about roughly one quarter teaspoon. But adding just salt into the diet is a game changer for a lot of people. So if salt's not something you've really thought about, um, this is a, a, a really easy thing to try. And, and it's something that you might notice just a profound difference from right away. Interestingly, with the sleep, sometimes a little bit of salt before bed can also actually prevent wake ups to pee throughout the night. That's because salt is or the sodium specifically is required for what's called antidiuretic hormone. And the one of the, the roles of antidiuretic hormone is basically just to prevent that strong sensation of, of having to pee. So if you have adequate sodium, it can regulate this ADH and for some people prevents the wake up to pee. So it's maybe another thing to try. And then the moving the lymph. So your lymphatic system. So one of the things that it's responsible for is, is basically moving fluid around your entire body. And this fluid is really concentrated with immune cells. So it's, it's a really important system for really just immune health. Now you might be wondering, well, what does my immune system have to do with like muscle soreness and recovering from injury or sorry, from, from exercise, but injury too. So remember that your ability to recover from exercise is really an immune response because of the inflammation. So when you work out, whether that be a long run, some really hard conditioning intervals, it could be weight training, whatever, you are creating a ton of inflammation. And if we accumulate too much inflammation, this is one of the things that's going to lead to that muscle soreness. Now, there's certainly some other things going on, but this is one of the factors here is, is that muscle soreness. So that means that anything to support your immune system, not anything, sorry, but things to support your immune system can be beneficial for improving that recovery. So with the lymphatic system, it's really quite simple. You want to move the lymph fluid throughout your body to support recovery. And how do we move that through our body? Well, our lymphatic system does not have pumps, which means we have to move it and we can move it by movement. I know that's very complex, right? But even just like walking, we'll do this bounding though, or rebounding as I think it's commonly called now is one of the most effective ways to move your lymph. So I've seen these mini trampolines start to pop up now and be a little bit more popular and they probably seem ridiculous, but there, there is some merit to this actually. So it's a, a little trampoline like that is one of the most effective ways to move lymph fluid throughout your body. And that has a ton of benefits just for overall health prevention of illness, not just recovery, which we're talking about now. I've actually thought about getting one of these because interestingly, like there is also some unique benefits to having something like that at your workstation, taking breaks, doing that, and then coming back. So definitely maybe looks a little ridiculous, but has some benefits. But so you want to move your lymph. So like jumping, uh, skipping, but even like I said, just walking, maybe a really, really easy jog. But again, that's going to be individual.
some people can handle that. Um, some people, maybe they're not at that, that level yet. And that's totally fine. But it, I think the most important thing with exercise is just your individual plan. If you're someone who gets sore all the time and it's terrible soreness and even like disrupts your day, then you need to change your plan. In my opinion, you're probably doing too much too early. You need to gradually build up to what you're doing to give your body time to adapt so that it can cope with that inflammation during the exercise, the oxidative stress, all these things that we accumulate, which then contribute to poor recovery. And that's, that's its own separate discussion, of course, but really something to think about. I think oftentimes we have this idea that you need to be sore and beat up to get the most out of your workout. That could not be more false you it's not a requirement you don't need to feel that way to get stronger faster fitter or healthier and maybe we can um, talk about this in more detail in a, a future episode my favorite supplements how do i pick well as i mentioned previously atp lab Cinermag. this is definitely my all-time favorite supplement Supplemental magnesium. I take this one every single day religiously, usually about four capsules every day. I'll split those up into two different doses. The first time I, I used this, I noticed a dramatic improvement to sleep. As I mentioned, I was kind of classically not a, a very good sleeper. And this was one of the things, it's it's obviously not a, a perfect fix, although it does have a dramatic effect for a lot of people, myself included. But as I took this, um, it had an enormous benefit. And this is just something I've continued with and absolutely noticed the benefits of every single day. So this would be my favorite. Um, so we'll just leave it at that, one favorite. This is a really good question here, this next one. What are some nutrients to be mindful of if following a vegan diet? So awesome question, I really like this one because it's, it's constructive, I would call it. Oftentimes what we see now, especially on social media is, is people being extremely dogmatic they have this diet and they're just adamant that it is the be-all end-all and they're very close-minded to other options i think this is better this is we're opening up the conversation we're acknowledging that there's different ways of eating and we're acknowledging the 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 strengths and weaknesses of different ways of eating and i think that's that's a a, a more constructive approach so before I jump into this, remember that there's certainly things to be mindful of or potential weaknesses, if you will, of, of any way of eating. So if we use two classic examples like the ketogenic diet or the carnivore diet, both of these have several things that should be, um, should be acknowledged or else we can possibly run into some, some risk. So something like a ketogenic diet, well, we need to ask for one, how your sleep is. If your sleep is crappy on a ketogenic diet, well, then you probably need more carbohydrates. If energy is low, again, maybe you need more carbohydrates. So oftentimes we'll see people pair this with a lot of exercise, really bad combo. So that's one thing to be mindful of with a carnivore diet. If you're not including organ meats or eating nose to tail, as it's commonly called, this is a big mistake as well, in my opinion. There's nutrients, certain nutrients in these organ meats, like liver, um, bone broth would be another example, though not an organ meat, but something that should be included. There's nutrients and some other things in these that you're just not going to get if you're only eating the muscle meat. And then 
another thing to to be mindful of with a carnivore diet just as an example you need to be sure that you're getting enough fat in so eating the fattier cuts and not just the lean cuts sticking to just the lean cuts you're going to feel like crap right away and continue to feel like crap but if you get sufficient fat in then a lot of people can feel quite good with this way of eating now with a vegan diet there is certainly some nutrients that must be noted so creatine is a big one we know that if we're following a, a vegan diet creatine is is near zero we don't get very much at all we do need sufficient creatine intake from our diet for optimal brain health and just long-term health creatine is a really important molecule you've probably heard it typically as it relates to exercise performance because it is involved in creating energy within muscle cells. However, it has similar effects elsewhere in the body, particularly the brain. So we know that insufficient creatine really impairs brain function. So in fact, there is some interesting interventional studies done with vegan participants showing that when they begin to supplement creatine their brain function improves it's because they they're not getting enough in and so when you give them that it supports the brain and then there is certainly some amino acids that they all happen to also start with the c that are particularly low on a vegan diet Carnosine would be one example. So perhaps you've heard of carnosine if you've heard of beta alanine. So beta alanine is a popular workout supplement that basically delays that sensation of fatigue or that lactic acid feeling, even though it's, it's not necessarily the lactic acid, but can improve exercise performance. But again, carnosine does other things. This is just where we'll hear about it most often. So this is one thing to be mindful of. Choline, this one is critical. Choline is really important for your liver for being able to properly detoxify, to make bile. Also important for brain function because choline goes on to make acetylcholine in the brain, a really important neurotransmitter for memory and learning. And choline is, is very low on a vegan diet. Carnitine. I said there was a lot of C's. We talked a little bit about carnitine last time. Carnitine is important for being metabolically flexible, and it also has some antioxidant effects throughout the body and brain as well. And then speaking of amino acids, we should also be mindful of how much protein and how many essential amino acids we're getting in general. So we've talked a little bit about this one before as well, but Protein and amino acids <clears throat> is critical for health throughout the entire body and brain. So it's not just building muscle, your immune system, gut health, your liver, brain function and neurotransmitters, everything needs these. And it is harder to get adequate essential amino acids and some other amino acids from a vegan diet. So I mentioned this before, but you guys can look this up. It's called the Diaz scale. It tells us that the protein that we get from plant-based foods is less bioavailable in the body, which means we, we don't get as much benefit from that protein as we do the protein from animal-based foods. So this has been very well shown in the research. And so we have to be mindful of how many essential amino acids we're getting. In other words, you, you want to make sure that you are getting enough of these. So that means that you're eating a wide spectrum of plant protein sources and not just relying on one single source. Omega-3, we've talked a little bit about this one before as well. So the DHA and EPA in particular, especially the DHA, we get from marine sources of omega-3 when we get omega-3 from plant-based foods so things like hemp seeds or chia or flax it's in 
the ALA form or alpha linoleic acid, and it must be converted to these animal forms in the body for us to actually use it. And as we've talked about before, the conversion is quite poor. So it's also hard to get adequate omega-3 if we are uh, eating this way. So this is a really important one to be mindful of, in my opinion. Um, I think it would be great for people to get this tested, especially if they've been following a vegan diet for a long period of time. So something like an omega-3 index. And then iron and B12 are two big ones. So iron is not only lower, but also there's some certain anti-nutrients they're called that are high in nuts and seeds and beans and other legumes and some plants that actually impair our ability to absorb iron. So a classic example would be phytate or phytic acid, which is high in some of these beans and other things. And what this does is it actually binds different minerals, including iron, and prevents us from absorbing all of that. So it's believed that vegans actually need to consume twice as much iron as others because they're not absorbing all of that. Now, the interesting thing with phytate and some of these anti-nutrients is that things like soaking and fermenting will actually reduce the amount. So isn't this interesting that cultures from around the world have been doing these things for thousands of years. They've been fermenting foods. They've been soaking them because somehow they know that this is advantageous for digesting these foods and also getting the nutrients from them. I find that so interesting that they've been doing this long before there was ever any research to support this. So this would be something that's worth looking up. Um, if you do prefer to stick to a vegan diet, look up how to soak things, how to ferment things. If you want to do it yourself, especially things like beans and even some nuts and seeds. So something like beans, ideally should be properly soaked before we consume them. If we are relying on that for a large majority of our nutrients and amino acids, this should be a priority. It's not a convenient process at all. It's um, a bit of a pain from what I've seen. And so not very many people do it. But again, something to look into. I'm certainly not an expert on this because um, I don't do it. And I, I mean, I don't really consume many beans anyways for this reason. And then I think it's critical to really limit processed foods if consuming a vegan diet, which is easier said than done. But one of my pet peeves is seeing this now often used as a, a big marketing strategy. So we'll see like granola bars or other packaged and processed foods and they'll use this on the label. They'll put vegan and then people think, oh, well, this must be good for me. It must be healthy. But then you turn it around and look at the ingredients and it's just all these chemicals and seed oils and other things that have no benefit and oftentimes are detrimental but they still fit that that kind of vegan label. So this is an important thing to be mindful of. And then B12 is another one. And um, I think I briefly mentioned that, but it is quite hard to get B12 from uh, plant-based foods. So that's all the questions for today, guys. Um, perhaps we will have to do a a full episode dedicated to some really big myths and some different troubleshooting as it relates to some of these most popular diets, because we could probably go through a list of these with some of these other ones I mentioned, right? Something like a ketogenic diet, this can be done great, or it can be done very poorly. Uh, same thing with like a carnivore and, and some of these other ones. So I think that would make for a, a good episode. The problem is 
there's so much out there marketing and influence from celebrities who know nothing about this. We have documentaries now on Netflix, like Game Changers. Don't get me started on that one. We watched one last night called Sea uh, Spiracy. So lots of good things in there. However, towards the end, it was quite clear what their message was. They're basically telling people to eat no fish at all. Pretty difficult, I think, considering how many people live off of fish. Certainly, we have a problem and overdo it, but um, there is a happy medium here. So if you haven't watched that documentary yet, um, you won't know what I'm talking about. But if you do watch it, you will see. And if you have seen it, then that will make sense to you. So that's it for now, guys. Thanks again for the questions. Like I said before, love getting those from you, so keep sending them to me. We're gonna do, in the coming weeks, some lab work analysis. I'm really excited for this one. As you can tell, I've mentioned it probably eight times now, but we're gonna break down my lab work and what it means, what I found, things like RBC magnesium, HSCRP, which is a marker of inflammation, vitamin D, fasting insulin, HbA1c, some lipid stuff. I'm keen for that one. Hopefully you guys are as well. Uh, we'll get a guest on here in the coming weeks and got some other cool topics planned for you guys. Brain fog, lots of other stuff. But if you have any suggestions on what you'd like to see, let me know. But that's it for today. Hope you guys have a great day and have a healthy week.